Many young people have grown up knowing that it's their cup that needs to be filled up by the teachers, the mentors, the parents, the bosses, the CEOs who have the jug to fill it up. At Bodrum Banta, we believe that it's through coming together that we create a bigger pool of knowledge and wisdom with the mission of making the boardroom as big as can be, amplifying the stories behind the people and filling each other up. Hello guys and welcome back to the boardroom. We are still here with the Quatanian Jefferson Kangacha, Yuri Koret, David Kariuki and myself. And I hope you guys enjoyed the part one of our conversation because we're going to go a lot deeper. One of the reasons why we did decide to, to feature ourselves in this episode and at this very point in time is because we realized, you know, back when we were when we were in Kenya in December, we realized just how much we have formed each other's life, life stories and and contributed to where each of us is right now. Um, a lot of people think it's just me and Yuri, you know, tag teaming over here. But these other two gentlemen really have shaped who we are. And we'd love to give you guys a lot of perspective into this. So we'll pick it up right from the fact that, you know, Jefferson mentioned that he took two gap years, right? And we'd love to see, you know, just get to hear, how did you spend your two gap years, Jefferson? Were you, were you just in Nairobi? You know, were you traveling around? Because I love... What I love for people to understand is the concept of the experiential learning that came from our gap years and how it's still going on now um, in, the, in the context of our, our relationship um, here as, as a Guatanian. And just to give a definition to it, right, experiential learning, according to BU Center of Teaching and Learning, is an engaged learning process whereby students learn by doing and by reflecting on their experience. So what are the different experiences that characterized your two gap years jefferson and how did how did we eventually meet <laughs> um yeah talk to us a bit about that great i love i love that definition you know learning by doing but even more importantly reflecting on it i feel that that has probably been the highlight of all of this and that is why we're even here today in this conversation reflecting on these experiences and so I think as I had mentioned earlier, um, I was hungry for opportunities. I was hungry for any link that would be sent to me by my friends. I was hungry to uh, apply and, and, and I was hungry to attend every networking meeting I could, you know, I, I, could, get, I could get. And that is where it all started. I, in 2017, um, one of the programs I attended in high school, which I think I should mention here and, and, and give a shout out is called Innovate Kenya. And it's run by um, a nonprofit organization called Global Minimum. And Innovate Kenya um, uh, hosted my friend and I, my former co-founder for a startup we founded back in high school, uh, hosted us over a week. And you know they introduced us to the entrepreneurial way of thinking a concept such as design thinking. And then at the very end of the session, they introduced um, other opportunities that we could explore outside Innovate Kenya. So therein, they mentioned a program called 3.Dash, which attracts um, 
teenagers uh, that are working on solutions that are helping um, people across the world uh, innovate around basic needs. And so shortly after high school, I spent a lot of time uh, working on hydroponics. So it's something that I'm self-taught. I was looking at how do hydroponic systems work, went online to the University of uh, uh, the Michigan State University you know, agricultural programs that had content online and I learned how these are how hydroponic systems are built. And I spend a lot of time with, you know, uh, local workshops trying to fabricate uh, a low cost hydroponic unit because, you know, it's very expensive to produce food in greenhouses. And I was looking at how I could put that into a local context. So based on that work that I was doing, then I found this program 3.dash that, you know, is attracting teenagers and is telling them, hey, we know you're a teenager. We know you're in this phase where you're trying to figure out, oh, how do I get my solution to scale? How do I get myself not just to build a solution, but also to be a leader? And I was like, I think this is a program that is going to set the trajectory of my gap year. So I apply in 2017 um, before joining the University of Nairobi. Then I get my results in November saying that, you know, I had been accepted and I was supposed to go to New York City in, in, in March of 2018. So I spent my time there, um, and that is where my gap year, my two gap year was you know, curated. That is where I was able to build my gap year and see, oh, this is what I want to do. And I was interested in exploring social enterprises. So in the first year, I spent most of my time learning the art of storytelling and doing the uh, hard technical work that comes with building an enterprise. So learning how you how you start a business, how you ideate around it, the patience that comes with appreciating that businesses are iterative, that the solution I initially had is going to change. So I spent some time in New York City um, uh, working on the Eden Hub, which Boniface introduced. And then I came back to Kenya to run another pilot. So uh, 3.dash connected us with mentors, resources, and tools you know, to uh, further uh, the, the, the work that I was doing. So spent some time uh spent some time uh in kenya um piloting and 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 building my enterprise beyond the you know ideation and prototyping stage then in 2018 somewhere along may because i, I had the conversation with my dad and he expected that i was supposed to go back to to school uh that 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 august back the university of nairobi one of my Not other on him <laughs> back on my other uh, one of my other friends uh did um go to watson and he shared the opportunity with me and watson again was a place where you go and accelerate the kind of enterprise that you had built and shortly before um, i had joined watson we had gotten some form of you know seed funding that you know was injected into the kind of work that we were doing so i had not told my dad this but in my vision, I saw that one year was not enough. So at the University of Nairobi, when I was deferring, I filed for two years. <laughs> so this is something I had already done, but I had not you know, communicated with it because I just wanted things to go with the flow and I wanted to also take things a day at a time. And so once that opportunity came, I shared you know, with my parents and told them that, hey, it is true I could go back to school, but this is what I have done. And there's an opportunity for me to further this work. And I feel that given a chance, I'd love to extend this for you know, one more year. And at the University of Nairobi, I had already done this. So they were a bit surprised, but 
for once in my life, I got very surprised by the reaction of my father because he was very excited by the risk I had taken. I had not told them I had filed for a second gap year. But what my dad saw was some sense of tenacity, this idea that I could see what you know I wanted to achieve and I sort of had a plan for it and I was willing and ready to take a risk. Well, that was scary. My dad saw it as an opportunity for me to throw myself in there and just go beyond being the average Kenyan student. And he was like, hey, I know you're going to think that this is not um, coming from an African parent, but I actually support you. And I really want to take this extra gap year. So learning by doing. Yeah, learning by doing. And he was like, whatever, whatever, the best way I can do this for you is not to tell you that you have to, you know, um, get done with school first, focus on books first. But there are fundamental lessons that you're going to take away from this one year experience that not even uh, attending a lecture, you know, will, will teach you. That not even, you know, sitting within, you know, you, uh, an academic space will teach you. So go out there and, you know, learn these things. But most importantly, even when you fail, just know that you can come back and there's a safe space for you to, 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 to come back and you know start all over again. And so that even put a lot of confidence in me to now move forward and you know focus on this, 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 this other gap year. So 2018, I moved to Watson Institute. So in Watson Institute, again, I have an amazing time and that is when I learn how, how do you connect and how do you engage with investors? How do you present more than an idea? How do you present more than a business? So, and that is where I raised my, after that is where I raised my first sort of um, um, seed, huge seed funding. Cause I was, I was, I had raised pre-seed uh, before going to Watson. Then I got my seed, seed, seed funding um, shortly after Watson. And that gave an opportunity for me and my partners to build it and have to what, 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 what it is and what it has been till, you know, till, till, till I left in 2020. So, that is my 2018. Then 2019, I am back to Kenya. And I am done with, uh, I'm almost done with two years since, <laughs> since I left school. So my father says, you know what? Now we had the agreement and I really also want you to uh, go back to school because there's something inside you that I realize that you probably might not explore if you do not go to an academic space. For a very long time, I had been in denial of my academic talent because I felt that I, I can't be entrepreneurial and be academic at the same time. But I realized that that was one of the things that I was not right. Like that was, that, that was one thing that um, um, was, that, that, that was one lesson that I had to learn that that was, you know, a myth or like something false uh, I, I had created in my head. You know, so my dad told me I want you to explore this and you know try getting back to school. So I I have a conversation with them and I had chosen Strathmore as my destination. I go to Strathmore and just before I make my enrollment, I find this link, Alan and Jill Gray, you know, foundation, and they're looking for young entrepreneurs for a three-month program. And I wanted to spend, uh, if, even if I was to go to Strathmore, I will spend most of my evenings and afternoons still doing, you know, still working for my startup. So I, I was like, is it possible for me to, you know, go to Strathmore and still try and, you know, apply to this program? So on the very last day of the application is when I submitted this program. And I was not even optimistic about it because 
of the eligibility requirements, I think I only met one because I was not in the graduating class of 2018 and they were looking for the graduating class of 2018. I was not, you know, um, uh, I, I, I was not part of like the frameworks that established for those type of students that were supposed to join that program. But I said, hey, I'm still gonna apply anyway. So then I get in and when I get in, I meet this amazing man, Boniface Amina. So that's where Boniface and I met. And shortly before I met Boniface, that's also when I made the other decision that, you know, I'm not gonna um, go to Strathmore immediately, start off my first semester in Strathmore immediately. I'm gonna wait till their second intake of that particular academic year and then finish YET first. And then when I met Boniface Aminer, so that is where, you know, our story began. And that is also where he planted the vision of, uh, you know, me applying to Cornell, which we can talk about later. <laughs> Next 10, Sana. <laughs> Thank you, Jefferson. No, no, you've given us a very, a very good introduction to, to where the connection between the four of us began because the same, same program as Strathmore, I got into it because of David's help, right? I was, I was busy rushing through the last bit of the application. David made me redo all my essays. And, you know, fast forward to April, the same year during the program, we had the first pitch competition. And that's where Yuri and David met Jefferson. But now when I look at the event that really solidified our relationship, you know, between the four of us was the International Youth Day event by the Kenya National Chamber, which David was leading the team in. All right, so I'd, I'd like David to, to take us through, you know, at what point in his success journey was this event coming in um, with the various responsibilities that he had, whether academic, and the leadership role that he was taking up at the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And why, why did you feel the need, David, to involve all three of us in this event? Okay, um, thank you, Boni. Um, so the International Youth Day, um, for our viewers and our listeners who might not exactly be sure of the date, is usually held annually um, and commemorated and observed by the United Nations and different nations around the world on the 12th of August, right? And for me, this this was back in 2020. So it was at the peak of COVID, 12th of August, uh, 2020. Uh, peak of COVID and it was coming at a time where I would say I was really thriving in my co-curricular journey as an undergrad, undergraduate student, you know, at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa. And this particular opportunity had arisen as a result of me being part of the think tank that formed the Kansas Air Junior, which is basically, in essence, a chamber, but um, more directed and tailored to the youth of our nation. And um, this was following, you know, again, thriving in the space of Kenya Model United Nations, where one of the directors was uh, part of the audience. So, you know, the work that I did, the good work that I did, my eloquence, um, ATC, ATC, and invited me, you know, to be part of this think tank. Now, fast forward to 12th of August of 2020, which is the um, International Youth Day um, of, of, of that particular year. A couple of uh, months back, we started, you know, the, the planning processes of um, this, this particular event design, right? And um, again, this was just another case of me 
throwing myself in the deep end, uh, not knowing what event design is. I know we have experts in the same space, uh, Bonnie and Yuri, shout out to you and Omian Project. But really, I did not know what event design is, you know, but I was called upon um, to take up this project and plan for it and make it a success. And I think one of the things that our, men, uh, our mentors usually tell us is that um, you, 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 you take up the opportunity first, then you figure out how you're going to do it, uh, you know, as you move along. And there's a certain quote that uh, Bonnie and Yuri uh, usually like to mention about, um, is it ready, fire, aim, or something? Yeah, on ready, fire, ready, aim. Ready, fire, aim. And this was just, you know, very practical, um, practical sense of, of that particular phrase, you know, ready, fire, aim. Um, I was ready for the opportunity. I fired, I took it. Then I started aiming, you know, once we're in the deep end. And um, with that came a lot of failures, you know, uh, as a result, you know, we had partners, we had uh, service providers who literally um, 12 hours to the event canceled on us. And that was, you know, quite devastating. But, you know, with the grace of God and our ability um, to, you know, pivot and find solutions, even at the most dire of circumstances, we're able to hold a very successful event. Now, before that, um, I've, I'd also learned the value of leveraging on my networks to, you know, sell an idea that, you know, is viable and that they can buy into and have a success out of it. And so within my space, I knew we needed, um, uh, number one, an MC for the events, and I could look no further. We had the local newsmaker um, in, in the building. So, of course, you know, I roped Boni in, part of the design team and the MC of the day. I knew we needed two youth who are entrepreneurial. Um, and one had to be in the space of agriculture, you know, agriculture being the backbone of our country, Kenya, and the, you know, foundation of really uh, much of the commerce that goes around, you know, in, 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 in the business space of our country. And so I knew I had Jeff Kangacha for that. I knew I had Yuri as one of the, you know, youth entrepreneurs. And so it came as a very easy peaks for me um, as we're coming to form, um, you know, the youth uh, panel that we you know, wanted to bring out that would now further engage with the chamber president and other um, leaders in, in the business space within our country. Now, um, I'd like to end it at that, unless uh, there's anything else. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful, David. This is also this was at the same event that Jefferson coerced me into moving out of my parents' house um, two weeks later. But as we as we dive into this, right, one of the interesting questions that we get as a group is on the basis of how, how expressive we are about our, about our relationship, right, as well as you know, the different experiences that have really brought us together and kept us together. And from people who are viewing it from an outside in, it looks like it's been roses and rainbows. But there are a certain, there's specific things that we had to unlearn and relearn over the course of our relationship that do feature in very crucial tenets of emotional intelligence. And I'd love you to come in on this because as, as a trainer on the subject and, and his wide experience 
from his very specific tutelage by Derek Banga as well. And just break, break down for us, Yuri, what, what has it taken for us to realize you know, the role that we have to each other as friends and the introspective look at our own individual masculinities that we've had to that we had to have. Um, thank you so much, Boni. And in regard to emotional intelligence, I'll be speaking from uh, you know two foundational aspects of emotional intelligence, which is self-awareness and you know an awareness of others. And with regards to friendship, I think having that opportunity to you know learn from Derek Banga and to sit through his trainings and to also do my own research on you know what is this all about i think it was not just an experience for me to explore on how i can you know perceive manage and understand my own emotions but also how i could be present in the lives of my friends right when i finished my high school got into my Gambia, it became extremely lonely because, you know, I was taking a different trajectory in life, uh, um, moving in a different bandwidth, and this involved, you know, engaging with people who are way older than me, right? And the only people that could only relate to my experiences were you guys, you know? So that was very foundational because I was able now to, you know, carve out a niche of who can I really describe as my close friends, right? Who are those people who are on the same journey with me? And that gave me an awareness of who I can openly share my experiences with and a few guys, right? So in terms of masculinity, um, many people define masculinity as being strong, right, physically. But there's, there's a lot to show on the outside of a man, right? Uh, you have a couple of muscles here and there. Um, you're very tough. Uh, you know, etc. etc. We've we've known of these characteristics, right? But getting to be under, you know, the wing of the Ripanga allowed me to also see that we can redefine masculinity and also have a comprehensive view of how it plays a role in us being strong enough to share what we are going through, right? I, I, I really follow a gentleman called uh, Jason Wilson, and he talks about, you know, masculinity a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, there's just so much that I have to learn from him. And he says, like, many men want to be hard, but are not ready to do the hard things, right? Uh, we can run into a burning building to save our families. We can run uh, when there's gunfire. We can jump helicopters, but when expressing how we feel without, you know, boiling up a fist or punching holes into the wall, it's something that becomes extremely difficult for us, right? And you guys were pretty much the early adopters for me to grow within that space of expressing my vulnerability, right? Expressing that side of me that is also soft and human, right? So I think as we you know, go into this discussion of masculinity, one of the key aspects that I'd love to share that my gap here really helped me to, to, to become more cognizant of is that aspect that I'm a human being with so many emotions, right? 
so many experiences, right? And if I don't understand them, if I don't know where they're coming from, and if I don't know how to express them, then I'm going to have a difficult life, right? And yeah, that's what I would just have to say about, you know, that aspect, that it, it allowed me to grow in a different way and it will help me become a better version of myself. So I'll bring it back to you, Gordon. Thank you, Rui. Thank you, Rui, for that introduction. And, and I'll just, just, I'll just pass the microphone off to, um, to David and Jefferson because in the interim, we, we were talking about how different people in different cultures and different contexts interact with the concept of masculinity. What are some of the observations that you've had, David, over the past couple of years specifically? Because we left high schools that had very interesting social constructs around who and what it means to be a man, right? And these were ingrained, you know, both systemically and historically, as I earlier mentioned, in the very fabric of educational institutions in the country. And it's only when we step out into the world, at least that's how it was for me, that we really get to interact with our masculinity because we're not drawing examples from rather drawing influence from our desk mate or the senior students or our friends in school we know how boys school gets right with different hype around different things oh you know you go for school functions and the ladies are around right and oh when you go back to to prep it's who had who got the most digits right the most phone numbers from um from the girls and and which specific schools huh uh, you guys know what I'm talking about that you're able to chat to. But, you know, it's really when we get out and begin having conversations from a global perspective, right, of masculinity and femininity that we really come to understand, oh, I had no idea what I was talking about or, oh, I didn't know that that's the perspective that people have to it. Um, and David, I'm sure within your line of work in um, modern United Nations, the, these conversations have come up. Right, and there has been that global perspective to it. So take us, take us into your world, David, and how you've approached these conversations of masculinity and femininity over the past couple of years. The conversations around masculinity and femininity are what I would say and think are very, are one of the most divisive, um, yet foundational conversations you know of our very being today in the very world that we live in right and as as you rightly mentioned we are coming from a very number one uh homophobic society as as a country i feel like we have not made enough strides towards curbing and eradicating uh homophobia um and, you know, these are some of the mindsets that are further reinforced in uh, some of the institutions that we go to, particularly in high school, where there's very limited um, interactions with uh, peers of, you know, the opposite sex and uh, different genders, right? And so our masculinity, again, at our very formative uh, ages of our lives, are, mis are, are misdefined, 
and are very skewed and biased towards uh, again homophobia, misogyny, um, and 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 what uh, a gentleman by the name Brian Hellman um, coined as a masculine paradox, right? And what that essentially means is, in the very simplest of terms, is how does society let men act? Okay, how does society let men act? We are all uh, men. Um, biologically, and I think even um, from a gender perspective, we all identified uh, identify as men. And uh, there is a certain mindset, basically, within this masculinity paradox, that uh, because of society, um, the pathologies and power, uh, powers that exist, men can only act a certain way, right? And if you don't check some of these boxes, if not all, then you cannot get labeled as a man, right? And just to further um, buttress that particular, you know, conversation, we are looking at, you know, men and boys um, facing social constructs, instructions, and pressures to be tough, you know, to be aggressive, to demonstrate aggressiveness, you know, uh, self-sufficiency, and aspire to be very macho, you know, as uh, Dr. Wichia, our mentor usually says, heteronormative, misogynistic, um, and, and basically different characteristics that, you know, um, activists have coined as man box, right? Now, what man box is are some of these toxic, uh, toxic masculinity traits that, you know, um, have been enforced reinforced, perpetuated by the current society that we live in, particularly in Kenya, and uh, sadly in most developing uh, countries, right? And so in, in my space and line of work, you know, um, looking at different um, societal matters from a global, but more especially just to um, add on to the term that you mentioned as, as, as global, would be a more humanistic perspective is how do we approach conversations around masculinity, around gender, around um, who we are as being, right? And these are more humanistic than they are global, right? It is who we are um, in essence as human beings, right? And how do we acknowledge, how do we um, appreciate, and how most of all do we uh, accommodate each other respective of our gender, respective of our sex, respective of how we identify as or who we identify as. And that for me has been very life-changing. And again, um, right, and, and rightly so, as you mentioned, these are some of the mindset shifts that I got um, from a personal perspective beyond my high school life. Because again, we are coming from societies that, you know, uh, and, and, and high schools and education systems that really do not allow us to think in that fashion that really just tell us, no, you can only um, approach masculinity in a certain linear form, right? Most of which is toxic, as, as we've already identified, and, you know, is, is becoming more and more of a conversation that now, and, 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 and uh, fortunately so, men are now willing to have. Like, how do we redefine masculinity? How do we unlearn some of the practices that have been inculcated to us uh, through socialization by our parents, our teachers, our friends, our societies, our environment, um, it's CTC. A story of, you know, nature versus nurture, right? And so 
for me, really, um, it's more of how can we build healthy and respectful relationships, um, habits, mindsets, and lives as true allies, um, not only for healthy masculinity, but also gender equality, right? Just looking at the bigger picture, um, in, in, in essence. And I'd love um, if, if given the chance to further um, contribute to this particular conversation. But back to you, Boni. Beautiful, beautiful, David. Jefferson, weigh in on this. What are your thoughts on the context that David has, has brought into this with our, our very conventional, sorry, conserve, conservative African, African societies that we, that we hail from? I, I think I'll summarize this as um, it is good to learn, but with how things are structured, it is, it is proving to be more important to unlearn. So how we learn and unlearn is something that is, is a relationship that I've been trying to study and understand, especially with respect to such topics as masculinity. There is so much that we need to unlearn. There is so much that that, 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 that was instilled in us that is not close to reality or is not close to how we're supposed to do things or how we're supposed to uh, perceive people, how we're supposed to relate with people. And I think this all starts from like our foundational years. And especially as it relates to the concept of masculinity, you know, we've grown up in spaces where, and especially in elementary school, in primary school, like it is not okay for you to be as expressive. It is not okay for you to be as a man to, you know, share those emotions. So how do we unlearn that? How do we get our peers and how do we get, um, um, uh, our, our, especially our young people uh, and especially our young male people to understand they need to unlearn this. I've also been thinking about it in the lens of um, privilege and bias. So if there are two things that I'm always cognizant about, uh, I try to be cognizant about not just with respect to masculinity, but with respect to how I approach life is privilege and bias. So there are things that would occur to me that they're normal. But when I think and reflect on them, I realize that they're, they're a privilege. I was just talking to uh, one of my friends uh, as we were uh, completing our computer science assignment. And she told me that, you know, after high school, she was part of a renowned uh, work program that um, selects high school students to, you know, get into the job market and work before they, they, they go to uni. And she told me that what, what I thought was normal was like, you know, I'd go to an office, do my work and then go back home without necessarily getting anyone making like sexual advances to me because I consider this an official and I consider this a workspace. But that is just because I consider that as, you know, normal, but, and that's sort of like a huge privilege because to her, she had to one report to work, but at the same time, she had to think that, oh, Three times in a week, someone is making sexual advances to me. Three times in a week, someone wants to put me in a particular department just because they have other intentions. So, you know, thinking about privilege, uh, the positions of privilege that we have and reconsidering them and thinking about them as things that, you know, we ought to share and make them uh, accessible to other people is something that I'm, you know, constantly thinking about. And the other thing is definitely bias. And that bias comes from, you know, mostly our own 
spaces and our own circumstances and how we want to stick to information that is not necessarily factual. So allowing yourself to be in that uncomfortable space where your sense of privilege and bias can be challenged. And at the same time, your willingness to unlearn is something that I think will contribute towards us having a positive and healthy conversation on redefining masculinity. Thank you, Jefferson. And, and just to tie what you said back to something that David mentioned about the masculinity, the masculine paradox, right? How does society let men act? That is a very, very heavy statement, right? How does society let men act? When we look at the concept of unlearning, right? There's a certain element of intentionality that needs to be there. And this, this cuts across the board, right? Um, beyond the conversations of masculinity as well. And one of the biggest things that I observe with our relationship as the Quaternion is how ready and willing we are able to learn from each other. And when we call each other out on, on a number of different areas, how open we are to unlearn certain things and relearn certain things. When I look at you know, where, where that stems from, I think there, there have been instances where we have been alone as individuals and probably messed up or, or offended someone or offended each other. And it's, it has really taken a, a very specific degree of accountability to one another to be able to call each other back and, and have certain conversations with each other. When you look at the statement of how does society let men act, I'm tempted to even, you know, re reconstruct that statement to how do men let men act in society, right? If we look at the biggest areas that of growth that we've seen in our relationship here in the here in the Quaternion and in the boardroom, right? <laughs> um, Yuri, Sean, and I, it's it's really come from a place of being bold enough to hold each other accountable right and each of us being open enough to to that love and that and that criticism when i look at our experience in watson yuri some of the the cultural narratives that we were introduced to initially it really did take that introspection to be able to move move up from this what were some of the the situations that you observed yuri from a self-awareness point of view that you brought forward that you realized I need to unlearn this for the sake of you know my own success in this situation and overcoming and growing from what I'm currently facing into something else wow I think there's so much to unlearn uh, there's so much to unlearn during that experience I think there's a there was a time when, remember when we joined high school, we weren't even allowed to hold hands. Uh, because Yo. if, you know, if, if you're found holding hands, that would be a fight, right? Um, we weren't allowed to even hug each other, right? And, you know, it's, it's so funny that now that I've got the, the, you know, the chance to, um, you know, dive more deeper and research about, you know, how we as humans relate. You know, me being able to hold your hand, Bonnie, is, is a way in which I can even explain. Me being able to have David or Jefferson is a way to show compassion. Yeah. 
but we know we've we've gone through so much conditioning to see that it's it's a wrong and not being a man by heart right and it's only when I got a chance to go to the US that I I had the opportunity to to engage with people who helped me you know uh, shape my mindset around these things right for the first time you know I actually got to meet gay people and I had so many constructs in my head that you know, gay people are bad um, gay people aren't supposed to you know be accepted into our society how are they supposed to do this you know they're pure this and that you know and it's only when that I got to engage with these people and when I when I was you know fact-checked, I was still I was told, no, you need to go and do your research. Here are certain books that you need to read. These are certain videos you're supposed to listen to. That I got to understand that I cannot, you know, I cannot be able to, you know, flourish or, you know, succeed in this world if I'm not able to, you know, support diverse people. If I'm not able to hold everyone together at the same regard, right? So it's been a whole, you know, learning path that I feel that I'm still on, where I'm, I'm going to like, you know, tear down all these constructs that I've, you know, made, I've been made to believe in my past and sort of unlearn them, right? There's just so much that we need to go through as, as you know, men in this day and age. And, you know, as I, as I you know, get back to you, Bumi, I think one of the things I really want to share that's really standing out is, you know, sometimes the things that we go through aren't supposed to like push us through that experience, but are, are sometimes meant to slow us down and think through it, right? I really love how Jeff has really spoken about being intentional about reflection. And I think lots of, many of us, you know, don't really reflect on our behaviors towards certain people during you know our day-to-day activities, right? Might just start with you know that person who is overly excited to meet you and you know that kind of person who is very compassionate, but you refuse to you know even greet them or to hold their hand or to hug them or to you know talk to them because they they have a certain tone in their voice, right? And you know, you, you you feel people with so much pain and and trauma because of just how you you've been wired up or conditioned. So, I I feel that it's it's now time for many of us, uh, especially we the youth, to you know sit back and actually reflect on all our you know, our decisions and our doings and how we relate with one another because it goes a long way. It goes a long way. If we do not, you know, confront these constraints that we have now, they will have a very big effect to our own success. Not just professional success, but success, you know, in this uh in, in, you know, success in life. Yeah. So all of that. Thank uh, you. Maybe, maybe um, just we... before uh Boni uh picks it up, I'd like to um uh speak on something. Uh, that Yuri has mentioned, yeah. just to build up on on, on his case, uh, as far as uh, unlearning um, certain behaviors, practices that have been uh, inculcated into us, you know, through um, 
traditions and um, the lives and societies of, that we've lived in. And I'd like to give a very, very simplistic um, example, right? But just right before that, allow me to just speak and say that um, when, when we look at masculinity in its traditional uh, flawed sense where, you know, men are meant to be strong, uh, overly ambitious, uh, self-sufficient, and all these sorts of things, we get the notion that, uh, you know, again, uh, the very flawed notion that men are meant to be very mechanical in how they do things and how they um, think about things and how they feel things and how they express um, uh, this, this feelings and emotions. And that in and of itself, again, um, therein lies a very big problem, right? And allow me to give a very... Uh, controversial but uh, true statement. The fact of the matter is that the traditional sense of masculinity is very is is and, and masculinity and the ego that comes with it is very fragile, right? And it takes a very small thing. It takes a very short statement for masculinity to be broken down, right? And this could be in various ways, shapes, and forms that I would not want to get into at this time. But I think as, as men, it's something that we need to understand and appreciate, right? And so for us as men to be safe um, in, in our masculinity, I think the need to deconstruct what masculinity is, how we've been taught for it to be, and how it's ideally meant to look like is a very important and imperative conversation. And the example I usually like to give is when I, you guys know that I enjoy cooking as a hobby, right? I enjoy having good meals um, and, and as such, I enjoy cooking. And so for me, it comes very naturally that I would know how to cook, um, etc, etc. And so when I meet some of my um, female and women counterparts and I tell them that, oh, one of my hobbies is cooking, the first reaction is always, oh, you know how to cook. And that in and of itself is, is exemplifies the problematic system of the definition of masculinity that as a society has been inherent in the very fabric of who we are, right? And of society itself, yeah? Because the knowledge, skill, and art of cooking is again, a very humanistic skill. You need food to survive, you know? And the notion that, you know, um, ascribed gender roles are only um, leaning, for, for certain things are only leaning towards one gender vis-a-vis -vis the other is very, very flawed. Because so for a matter like cooking, again, very oversimplified, is that you as a human being, you need to know how to cook because you need food to survive. Right, and so the notion that only women belong, uh, women belong to the kitchen, or um, only women should know how to cook, or only women know how to cook, then their in and of itself, um, you know, is is disqualified as a viable ag uh, argument, right? And this, some of these rules, you know, um, are reinforced through a system of shaming and bullying, as as we really so you know in, in our high school experiences 
and also as a system of uh, rewards and reinforcement, positive reinforcement, quote, and positive in the sense of quote unquote um, reinforcements that really um, do not hold water and are not healthy, because you will be shamed for hugging, um, uh, as as Yuri said, for hugging your fellow um, gentleman friend, right? And it's just a sign of human affection that you are my friend, I care about you. And so I want to express this through a hug. And it's so simple, right? But then you're shamed for that. Then we are rewarded for certain misogynistic practices that seem to, quote unquote, again, um, firm up our very fragile masculinity. And this is very problematic in and of itself. So these things being done to really just... Uh, promote conformity to, to, to the societal norms, again, which are very much flawed, becomes a problem. And I'd want to um, just uh, give an analogy for, for, for those who are into motorsports um, and, 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 and love, you know, uh, Formula One. My team, um, personally, in the Formula One space is Mercedes. Uh, Lewis he Hamilton had to. Driver, he had to. Uh, of all he time. had to. He had to. <laughs> Just, just putting it out there, but um, I just want to, uh, to, to, to further pinpoint on a point that Jeff mentioned on, you know, a privilege. And I want to do one better and pinpoint it and be specific to male privilege and understanding male privilege. And I just want to take a quote out of uh, the Mercedes uh, boss um, speech as and when he, they were unveiling the new W13 vehicle that's to be used in the 2022 season. Uh, season oh, guys. Um, his his statement in part was was uh, read that in our little microcosms, uh, microcosmos, sorry, 99% white middle aged manager world. We um he, he was talking about you know um the lack of inclusion and diversity in the sport and so this uh, statement came in context of that and he said that in our little microcosms uh cosmos 99.0 white middle-aged manager world we should utilize that to create positive change and so he was bringing this around in the context of how mercedes as a formula one team is trying to bring in inclusion and diversity to the sport right and with that in mind, you know, um, it shows his awareness to his male privilege as, again, a white middle-aged man in the world that he lives in. And this is not only limited to such people, but also to, you know, us as students, right? And when you break that further down, um, you can go as far back as... Um, the formative years of uh, you know the the American uh, country, uh, America yeah. in essence, right? Yeah. And uh, Bonnie, you have um, alluded to this series that uh, we've been asked to watch by, by our mentors, and uh, I'm, I'm certain you know a lot of people have have watched it. The men who built America, right? And while we glorify you know the successes that this man, quote-unquote successes that this man um, had and that strongly and that significantly contributed to building America, we usually tend to forget that not only are they coming from point of male privilege, white male privilege, 
but that this um, systems, this uh, structures that enabled them to be in that position were brought about, they were built on a foundation and reinforced by certain injustices, both historic and systemic, that only arose as a, you know, as a result of male privilege and quote unquote, the masculinity that they defined it as, as at that time, right? And so just to give a very um, simple, but short, but precise example, is that Carnegie, for instance, had 200 slaves, right? Um, Vanderbilt had, planta had, had plantations uh, slavery, right? Mm. Um, John D. Rockefeller, uh, both uh, himself and the junior, well, the son, I presume, were part of a national, they financed, personally financed a national plan to reintroduce white slavery. Right. And the privilege that I'm talking about is that as a white man in that day and age, they were allowed to have the, the structures, the systems and the societies that they lived in allowed them to have, have that sort of, you know, um, easy getting away with, with such injustices. Right. And if I'm to contextualize that and tie it now to this world that we live in and to give the example that uh, Jeff gave is that as a man if and when i go to the to the to the to the to the to the office you know i barely have at the, even at the very back of my mind the notion that oh i might be you know sexually assaulted today right but when i talk to uh, my, my my lady friends my female friends they tell me that this is a reality that they have to you know um undergo and and live in and around every single day of their lives, both in school, both at work. I know that when I go to school, I'm just there to learn, um, you know, do my co-curricular activities, engage with my peers and go back home. But then they know that they cannot wear certain types of clothes because a lecturer or a student might want to use that as, 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 a, as a preemptive text to, you know, uh, sexual, uh, putting forth sexual advances or even sexual assault at the very worst case, right? And so it's an entire um, interweaved uh, and complex situation of um, systemic injustices that have arisen just as a very result of the flawed um, definitions of masculinity that we as men have had in the past. And acknowledging that in the first place then having a discussion, then knowing how we can use that now to tear down certain systems, both of the patri uh, patriarchy and both of, you know, a um, uh, 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 flawed uh, masculinity, that we can now achieve a more, uh, you know, a, a better world where everyone can self-actualize and really not have to worry if and when they go to the office, they are going to, you know, be sexually harassed or for the same amount of work, then they will have to be paid much less just because they were born with a different reproductive organ as you and I were born with, you know? And so it's, it brings in an entire conversation that men need to have. And allow me to just uh, close by one quote, Puni, a quote that was, I, I read by a book 
uh, in a book by uh, Paul Kiville. It's called Men's Work and How to Support, uh, Stop the Violence That Tear Our Lives Apart, right? And this, this also goes to just uh, build up on what you mentioned, Bonnie, that calling men mm. in to more unbounded gender expressions and calling men out to face and embrace more radical accountability, you know? So this is us coming in together as men to, uh, to, to, to more ad- unbounded gender expression where we can express ourselves and our gender in a way that is beneficial and healthy, but also calling ourselves out, right? Calling men out to face and embrace more radical accountability. Thank you for that, Boni. You guys are not pulling any punches today in the boardroom. We have broken that, that, that down completely. And this, I have learned an incredible, incredible amount of knowledge from you guys. And whew, we could go on and on and on. I know, I know Yuri, Yuri Koyat is feeling this. Jefferson was having nodding, snapping his fingers. Uh, but yeah, we have come to the close of this amazing conversation. And you guys are superstars. You guys are rock stars within your industries and in our lives. We, it has been a beautiful pleasure to have you guys in the boardroom. And we have a small segment that we're going to rush through real quick before you know, David steps into his Mercedes-Benz side. Jefferson steps into his convertible. It's called the elevator session. So picture yourself walking out of the boardroom hey, with your masculinity intact. <laughs> I love that David referenced how fragile this traditional view of masculinity is, but that's a, uh, that's a chat for another day. But picture yourself walking out of the boardroom and a budding intern who has been touched by your amazing words has one question to ask the both of you. Are you guys ready for this next session? Jefferson, we'll kick off with you. Are you ready? All right, let's hop into it. First question, Jefferson, what have you gotten better at saying no to of late? I have gotten better at saying to, at saying no to things that um, affect my, or like put my mental health to jeopardy. So Mm. how do I put this? It's, well... Okay, let me let me take that back. So I have gotten better at saying no to things that, you know, um, go beyond my personal space, and especially those things that go beyond my personal space and jeopardize my mental health. What do I mean by this? I am, I consider myself a kind person, and I love. I sort of have like an open door policy, but sometimes I want to have the space to myself. And yeah. you don't want to lock out people. So it has been very hard for me, especially to, you know, just say no to allowing people to just come in here and have a chat with me because I love doing that. I love being there for people. But I have learned that it is also important for me to have my own personal space and quiet time. And when I need that and when I want to create that time for myself, I confidently say no. Thank you. Thank you, Jefferson. I need to learn how to do that better. <laughs> uh David, what have you gotten better at saying no to? Um, thank you, Boni. Um, I think over the past uh, couple of uh, years, um, 
I have learned to say no to pressures that external pressures, particularly that are not beneficial to my life or rather that are uh, of little to no value. Um, and, and to put it more explicitly, that are superficial to the um, growth of who I am as a person. That for me is, is one thing that I have really, um, you know, grown over, which was really a struggle, you know, in, in back in high school, but now, you know, um, I'm much better at that. Thank you. Yuri, wrap it up for us. What have you gotten better at saying no to? Um, quite interesting. We're always trying to take all opportunities that come your way, but I've become very strategic at saying no to different kinds of opportunities that don't necessarily align with the kind of person that I want to become in the future. So that has been quite interesting. And I remember uh, we share a quote for me, uh, will it do more good or bad to you? So that's something that I use when assessing uh, different kinds of opportunities that come my way that don't necessarily fall within you know, my areas of interest or I don't really see a future within that, you know, that domain. Thank you, Yuri. I'm seeing David. David is trying to throw me under the bus, but you will not do that on my own podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, saying no to opportunities. I mean, very recently, we've had to just really assess how certain certain opportunities that are tabled um, to us contribute to our short-term and long-term goals and not feeling regret for saying no to certain things and yeah we credit that to jefferson and david the people who have really been pushing us to be paid for our time and for our value and if these opportunities don't match up to that reward element of wikigai (laughs) we'll talk about that one next time Mm -hmm. but yeah not being afraid to to say no to that thank you so much gentlemen this two-part series has been worth it I'm sure listeners who have been with us through the first and second part have seen the need to, you know, keep this conversation going with these gentlemen. And this is just the first feature of the Quaternion. We will be back to you guys with more the different articles, theories, movies, books that have been referenced. You can find them in the description. And we will be coming back to you with an amazing, amazing episode at the end of the week. Our Founders Friday, this this Founders Friday coming up will be in bulk, um, will in bulk feature the amazing um, stories of these, these three amazing gentlemen here on the pod. Once again, Jefferson, thank you so much for joining us. David, it has been an amazing pleasure. Yuri, ah, you were with you here every day. <laughs> but thank you guys and we will see you on the next episode. Cheers.